I regret a lot of what I had to do. How convenient of you. We had no choice. We were fighting for survival. So were we. We had an empire to protect. We needed your resources. Everything I did was for the greater glory of Cardassia. And if you spineless scum had to be ground under, so much the better. All that mattered was Cardassia. I loved my homeland. That's what justified my actions. That's what gave me strength. Nothing justifies genocide. What you call genocide, I call a day's work. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton reporting for duty because he doesn't quite want to make fun of anything going on in this episode due to the uh, very serious <laughs> subject matter. Fair enough. We are here this week to talk about Duet and the 30-year anniversary and legacy of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, we kind of realized uh, the Emissary premiered uh, 30 years ago uh, as of this month that we are recording here in January. And we're like, you know, uh, we've covered episodes like Emissary and all that sort of stuff. We covered the amazing documentary, What We Left Behind. Um, so we got to thinking, like, how do we honor 30 years of Deep Space Nine in a way that we haven't gone in depth before? And I, I think that's how we kind of decided, like, what is the strongest or among the strongest season three episodes of Deep Space Nine? I think there's really only three contenders, Cam. Uh, it would have either been uh, The Emissary, In the Hands of the Prophets, or Duet. And I think, you know... This is not an episode that we have kind of uh, overdone. You know, I think everybody's sick of me making uh, references to, uh, you know, who watches the Watchers at this point, um, sure. or in your case, uh, the Ensigns of Command. So <laughs> I know that, um, you know, Duet would uh, be, be kind of a good one for us to kind of dig into as an episode and also just how it reflects like Deep Space Nine's uh, legacy and, and what 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 actually kind of unfolds for like the journeys of some characters, Akira especially in the uh, subsequent six seasons following this episode. And also, it feels like this might be the key moment where DS Nine really figures itself out. Like you can mm. look at Emissary, and that movie, or sorry, that episode really puts all the pieces in place. You know, sets up important things like the relationship with the prophets. Kyle Paka obviously going to play a very large role over the course of the series. Um, but sure, you kind of, <laughs> you kind of go through the rest of season one, and they're kind of in that TNG kind of mindset where, well, let's just I don't know, do a random episode this week, or you know, you've got the storyteller in there, things like that. It doesn't feel like a show that fully knows what it is. But when I get to the episode duet, it feels so confident and seems to understand so well what DS 9s strengths are you kind of get the sense they understood that as well and rolled right into season two and beyond. I do appreciate that uh, at the conventions, Marina Sirtis will complain that uh, during the sixth and seventh season of Star Trek The Next Generation, that uh, they were taking all the good scripts from TNG and then just like <laughs> turning the the names into different characters so they could apply them to Deep Space Nine episodes. I want to know what episodes from like this first season of Deep Space Nine were originally meant to be 
like a TNG episodes. I'm, I'm kind of racking my brain. It's a little bit uh, difficult. I don't know. Maybe something like uh, Babel, uh, Dramatis Personae. I, I don't know. Like uh, it, it's a bit of a stretch because it wasn't necessarily the strongest season uh, that we'd get to see in Deep Space Nine. I would definitely say it's a stronger season than season one of TNG or season two of TNG. I could see it being maybe the storyteller as well. Uh, you know, obviously that has a lot of Bajoran stuff in the episode, but if you rewrite that, I think it probably would have worked. Now, assuming my theory is correct, which character on the TNG crew is the storyteller? Uh, do you think it's Data? Ooh. You know? Huh. Cause, okay, because yeah. if we want to go engineer to engineer analog, could you really imagine, <laughs> like, LeVar Burton <laughs> in the stormy weather? <laughs> From reading Rainbow to the Storyteller. I think it all lines up. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You you have a very good point there. Very salient. I, I, why, why do I ever disagree <laughs> with you, Cam? Why, why do I ever go against you? So, okay. <laughs> um, but it is interesting that what you're bringing up, you know, whether this is kind of um, Deep Space Nine coming into itself, you know, because there really is no like true sci fi conceit in this episode. It was a no. bottle episodes. Um, you know, there's a couple notes. I, I went and read uh, the DS9 companion entry for this episode before we started uh, reading. And um, they pointed out that, look, uh, they used up a lot of their budgets going on location a lot throughout the first season. Plus, you had the uh, premiere episode, which was, I think at that time, the most expensive uh, pilot episode ever made for television. You also knew that going into the next episode is going to be the uh, the season finale, and they wanted to save up budget for that. So that's why we have this kind of bottle episode here. And I think they also knew um, they wanted to do something really, really strong. And they're like, well, what do we have chambered up? Oh, yes, the same writers as Move Along Home. And... <laughs> um, so this is where the story by credit comes from is from uh, these same two writers and it was peter allen fields who actually wrote the uh, the screenplay and he gives a lot of credit to iris stephen bear especially for the maritza reaction dialogue and all that and there's like talk of uh, the two of them kind of acting out or at least kind of rehearsing a lot of the dialogue going back and forth between kara uh, kira and maritza and the other thing that's uh, i found quite fascinating is that uh armin shimmerman says hands down this his his favorite episode of deep space nine ever and he only had like hmm. one scene in this one in which he's pondering if the survivors and family members <laughs> of a uh, forced labor camp would be interested in gambling at his bar and um yeah that's that's quirk for you that is a pretty great quirk moment and uh, i think it's a a fun way to work in like a very dark bit of humor in an episode that otherwise would be entirely humorless yeah, just a little bit of levity isn't that bad. Um, this episode is actually originally known as the Higher Law, rather than uh, duets. Um, what, what what episode name do you think kind of uh sticks more, Cam? The Higher Law or Duet? I think Duet sticks more because when I because I came across that as well the the Higher Law title, and I'm like when I read that title or hear that title, I immediately think of the Higher Ground from early seasons of TNG, whereas Duet kind of feels like it stands on its own. Uh, yeah, for me, The Higher Law sounds like some Seth Rogen movie or something like that. Um, so <laughs> the other thing to point out, though, I did not realize, or maybe I just had to be reminded after going over this uh, companion entry once more, but, um, <laughs> you know, 
we see the appearance of Neela, who turns out to be, uh, you know, O'Brien's uh, assistant technician uh, on the station, and she ends up being the assassin in the next episode, uh, the the season finale. And they originally wanted Neela to appear in two episodes prior to the finale, just to make you know audiences think, oh, here's a brand new recurring character. And uh, in fact, they <laughs> this is kind of uh, I don't know, cut through. But in the uh, companion, uh, they're like, yeah, the uh, original actress we hired for this role, uh, she played a character named Inara in the episode The Forsaken, the, the one featuring one, Loxana Troy. And uh, they said, she didn't work out. So um, cut her loose and created oh. a brand new character who we saw for, I'd say, a good six, seven seconds in this episode. And I just, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's a kind of a blinking, you miss it kind of moment with Neela, where I, I don't even think they uttered her name in this one. So I just, it kind of ultimately seemed pointless when you get around to kind of the assassin reveal in the finale. I definitely scratched my head on revisiting this episode and that little bit there, because this episode otherwise feels like a incredibly well-conceived episode that's pretty flawless from a writing and staging standpoint throughout the course of it there's not a lot of like you know awkward moments where you go like oh that should be smoothed out or something uh that was the one that i was like what the hell is going on for this like split second of o'brien teaching you know this younger officer about engineering and i'm like <laughs> like i really was scratching my head going like i don't recall this paying off in this episode but it's a little even though it's short as you said it's a little too long to be entirely like background material in an episode. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, I, it was when I finished the episode and was reading up that I was like, oh, of course. Okay, it's coming back to me. <laughs> but, yeah, might be, might be the only moment in this episode, I would say, that feels a little, you know, a little dodgy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And look, uh, for those that might not recall, uh, I don't know why you'd be listening to this episode. You have no recollection of duet or, you know, maybe you just care about DS9's 30-year <laughs> legacy. But uh, this is where we have a bit of a, a would-be Cardassian imposter show up on the station. He is, in fact, really did serve at the uh, Galatap uh, labor camp uh, during the Cardassian occupation of Bajor. And he's just utterly racked by guilt, and he wants essentially to be executed to pay for the guilt that he has serving as this filing uh, clerk. And so he essentially impersonates the uh, the goal who is leading that camp uh, there. And it's really look, you, you can say this is an episode, uh, you know, where it's the guest star has a spotlight, but this is such an episode where it really informs who Kara is as a person and her coming to grips with her hatred for the Cardassians. And this is what I find so beautiful about Deep Space Nine is that the characters can be layered, they can be complex, and it would just get old if Kira was constantly hating on the Cardassians all the time. She might have prejudices that exist for long, long periods, but as she gets to know individual Cardassians, you, t you can tell that her opinions do change. You, you know, remember she meets Gamor in Second Skin? Yep. And it's that father figure that carries on from there. And it's just that sort of stuff. Um, it's also, uh, you know, uh, it, it reaches new heights for her love of individual 
Cardassians, when uh, we have that episode, uh, Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night, when uh, Dukat uh, hails Kira on the anniversary of Kira's mom's death to say, uh, yo, I banged your mom <laughs> back in the day, just thought I'd let you know. <laughs> like, uh, okay, <laughs> I don't know what that was about, sir, but uh, you are a psychopath, good for you. Yeah, well, I think it's really interesting when you have a character on a show who does have a prejudice, and you can understand and be sympathetic to Kira's reasons for having this feeling towards Cardassians, giving her, given her background. But I think, uh, you know, a uh, mediocre show just kind of lets it sit there, and maybe you get like a one special episode kind of thing where this person makes a friend or something like that. But what I like about DS9 is... They will set that up, and you can see with Kira, so much of it is a d- defense mechanism, and the character, they did not use the term PTSD when they're writing 1990s television. They would totally be using it now if they're writing that character. But I like that they're, as you mentioned, constantly finding ways to introduce Cardassian characters that get through to her on a human level, because ultimately that's kind of what Star Trek is about, you know, growing and evolving with people who could be like you, or you share common goals with. And I think that's one of the interesting things is to take someone who is prejudiced and show how they're through these relationships and through being open to other experiences, they can actually grow as people. Well, it's, I keep going, going back to this example. Think about where like Nog started yeah. in episode one yeah, and where he ended by the finale. And, you know, I also wonder, I think we mentioned this maybe last week or the week before, despite O'Brien being kind of the most static character mm-hmm. on Deep Space Nine, I never felt they, they did bad by O'Brien's character. They were always giving him really fascinating things to do. I don't know if necessarily, okay, remember when we are introduced to O'Brien's feelings about the Cardassians in the TNG episode, The Wounded? Mm-hmm. Um, How much do his feelings really change by the time we get to an episode like Empok Nor? Yeah. And he's going mano y mano with Garrick. And remember he sets that booby trap? And at the end, Garrick is like, well, I must praise you for setting that booby trap uh, so that it would not kill me. And O'Brien is like, it was meant to kill you. It's <laughs> kind of like... But it's just, I, I don't know, it is really fascinating how you can watch the journeys of just such this disparate gang of characters and it feels organic it feels natural versus i don't know some of the character journeys we've seen on uh some other uh certain uh series of uh star trek that might be airing uh right now i don't know <laughs> i was gonna say i mean when it comes to feelings about cardassians and o'brien i do think maybe the show missed an uh, opportunity there to have an episode that gave you a little more insight. Mm-hmm. But I can also understand after the events of Tribunal why maybe O'Brien <laughs> doesn't have the best of feelings going forward as well. There, there's only so much he can do, right? Yeah, at a certain point, Miles O'Brien was probably just better having different types of adventures on DS9. <laughs> okay, okay. I, so, Cam, I, I pulled this up before we started going into this episode or uh, started recording this podcast, but uh, it's from our list of ranking the uh, greatest star trek uh, main characters uh, specifically we did a recurring list which is a lot of fun as well but mm-hmm. uh, for the main characters we ultimately have kira ranked number six and uh right ahead of her at number five is cisco and number four is odo out of the greatest star trek main characters of all time would you ever be willing to kind of reconsider that order would you ever be willing to think like could we bump 
Kira up a couple spaces? Or, I don't know, like, I, it's such a leading question, but yeah. is Kira kind of secure in that number six spot, I guess is what I'm getting at. I have no problem putting Kira near the top. Like, she's my favorite character on DS9. But I guess I have to then pull myself back and say, when you look at the overview of DS9, is her journey as fulfilling dramatically as the other two? I think Odo, we've talked about it. Odo is very much kind of the heart of that show. So I, I don't know, like, on paper, if she would leap past him. I think maybe there's a, a little more of a conversation with Cisco. But even still, like I look at a lot of the Cisco highlights, ugh, I mean, I feel like it's a, <laughs> it's kind of like a no win trying to rank these three. Oh, yeah. We obviously tried it um, and we're questioning it as we should be, but I, I don't know if there's like a uh, home run way to order these three. I think this is what the argument that we eventually kind of agreed on in that the journey of Deep Space Nine was very much centered around the mythologies of both Odo and Cisco. Mm -hmm. And it was ultimately like what mythologies we were most interested in. Was it kind of the, the founder Dominion stuff versus the Bajoran, you know, spirituality politics stuff? I think for me that the Bajoran politics spiritual stuff probably worked on me more than the average fan. I mean, not by a huge, huge degree, but I think I was drawn into those episodes a little bit more than maybe the average fan. But ultimately, I think I was the one that was pushing uh, for this. I think ultimately, I, I still have to put Odo at the top. You know, and even in an episode like Duet, just him, just the friendship, the trust, and just kind of the, the, the stalwart nature of Odo backing both Kira and Cisco's decisions all the way. Remember when uh, Cisco takes Odo off investigating the identity of Maritza and puts Kira on this case and you know uh, it's just like another great moment where kira says to uh cisco look uh you once called me a friend i'm asking you as a friend let a bourgeois do this cisco contacts odo and says look kira's on the case his initial response no hesitation he's like i understand sir you know it's just kind of like just gives that much more weight to what a backer odo has always been with regards to Kira, even before we get to an episode like uh, Necessary Evil, in which we realize that he's actually been in love with her this entire time. Yeah. And I think what's also really interesting about Duet is that people look at this episode as a Kira episode, and it's very much her journey throughout. But it's also like a really good example of an Odo investigator story, where, you know, he plays that role through so many episodes of the series, but like... The way he's always in the background, figuring things out, helping along with Kira's story, pretty invaluable. He might be the character that in some ways, um, in terms of problem solving throughout, you know, your standard episode of Star Trek, he probably fulfills uh, that role the best of anyone in this episode in figuring things out and providing answers to the other characters. And I like how it's unflashy throughout. It, it He never overshadows the Kira story. And the performance by, you know, René Albergenois never is bigger than anyone else. But I like that Odo is always in the background. And I even love a moment where he's sitting there talking to Gul Dukat. And you get a sense of their relationship. Apparently, according to, to Dukat, they were great <laughs> friends who played games all the time. And to Odo, it was one game and <laughs> Dukat cheated. 
<laughs> I know. Well, maybe we could talk about Dakot and his legacy as well. And it's so great that this is such a strong episode. It's only the second time Dakot appears in season one. And it, is it really? It's interesting that, like, yeah, he, he was in the first episode. Yeah. He was in this episode. And that was it for season one. And I really? think wow. it dawned on the writers very quickly. Like, we've got gold here, despite the fact that Mark Alimo is um, sitting on a view screen yeah. for his two scenes, one with Cisco, one with uh, Odo. And he's still just kind of got this gravity around him. And he's just kind of chewing the scenery. You could tell, you know, and I, I just think about, like, even just, like, moments where... Well, actually, this made me laugh when I got to think about it. But, like, uh, I think he uh, says to Cisco at one point, you know, if any of these uh, Bajoran uh, hate mongers uh, harm one little hair on uh, this innocent Cardassian, I'll hold you personally responsible. Well, by the end of the episode, he is stabbed to death. And does Dakot <laughs> ever hold him personally responsible? I, I, I don't recall if that came up again. I think there's an out to that one where once they set up that this guy's an imposter i feel like ducat cares a lot less it's like oh like what's going on this sounds convoluted i don't want to deal with this this sounds like a lot of paperwork eh. I, I did have another like kind of laugh with ducat in this episode where you know cisco I th- was it cisco or odo was talking to him about um uh gul dahil being dead or dahil being dead and he's like i went to the funeral and it kind of yeah. continues on from there and then at a certain point, he's like, half of Cardassia saw this person's corpse. <laughs> it keeps growing and growing to like to the point where it's like, we need emphatic proof that this uh, person is not the actual Dario. And you have him giving this grandiose statement of half of Cardassia witnessing the corpse. Well, if there's anyone to do that, it'd be Dukat, of course. Oh, yeah, of course. And we have seen so many episodes of Star Trek, as has anyone listening to this show, where alien character pops up on a view screen issues, warnings, threats, whatever. And you look at how Mark Alimo does it and how much gravity he has. Avery Brooks is an in, you know pretty intimidating dude on Star Trek. Like Cisco is a character you would not want to mess with. And yet Gul Dukat has enough presence that you can see why they felt he was such a great sparring partner for Avery Brooks because the two of them both seem very formidable even when recording these view screen scenes. Yeah. It is interesting. So, look, he makes two appearances in this season, and they throw him in five episodes in the second season, including um, one of the episodes, I'm, I'm blanking on which one, um, from, you know, how it's essentially like a three-episode season premiere for season two. Yeah. Um, the Circle, the Siege, and yeah. Oh, Homecoming. That's what it was. Yeah, he was in Homecoming. Right. And uh, that that was essentially, they kind of figured out, like, like, let's get this guy in early and often. like. Like, he just works, like, he fits in so well with the show, along with, you know, a character like uh, Garrick, who is kind of curious that uh, nobody went to Garrick at any point in this episode. That is also true. That would have been very helpful to have Garrick for this story. And, you know, I think could have added even more to the episode. I would love to hear what Garrick's thoughts on this. I, I am curious what the moment was, though, they realized that Ducat was something they needed to hold on to. I like to think... It was civil defense where he is truly amazing. Well, okay. Like, like he, I, 100%. Yes. Yeah. I'm just trying to think, like, was there probably not like an earlier episode where they're like, oh, we've, like, we know what we've got here. Like, because um, they were even using him a little bit, like, more sparingly in season three, though. Like, yeah. Uh, okay. So I just pulled up the list of episodes that uh, he's appeared in across. Deep Space Nine. So yeah, in season three, 
he was only in three episodes. So that's only one more than in season one. Huh. And, uh, and guess what, Cam? His last episode in season three was Explorers. And <laughs> yet again, he appears on a view screen, much like this episode. So, um, and then, oh, interesting. Okay, so, and then season four, yet again, uh, he only appears in three episodes. And remember, that's where they're turning more towards the Klingon conflict versus what's going on with the Cardassians. But right. his final episode in that one is Return to Grace. Uh, and that's where we kind of find out he's now kind of a, uh, he, he's got his own war, uh, a cloaked uh, bird of prey. And he's on the hunt uh, as kind of a, uh, uh, a rebel uh, kind of guerrilla guy attacking uh, the Klingons there. So, but uh, honestly, like by the time we get to seasons five, six, seven, like he is appearing in like, uh, you know, six to eight episodes a season by then. It is pretty crazy how big a shadow he casts over that show, considering how sparingly he was used in those first, you know, few seasons. Yeah. Wow. Um, I do like just even like little lines that he he's gets in there with like, Dakot talking to Cisco about like what is your obsession with these alleged Cardassian improprieties? I'm just like, <laughs> just but even the dialogue is so good and, and like just Mark Alimo just seems like to be built for this character. Oh yeah, and I mean it ties into the theme of one of the themes of the episode, which is like the way they hide the horrors of the war behind like language, and that's part of what Dukat is doing throughout this episode where oh yeah private citizen and improprieties and all that sort of thing it's only like that really kind of shocking for star trek moment where kira fairly early in the episode has like the breakdown and talks about you know the women being raped and the men being beaten and all of these sorts of horrors that went on during war that kind of like cuts through the veneer of the episode to get to the heart of what has just so like broken down kira and that moment, I think, really hangs over the episode. And there, have we ever heard like this sort of like language being used in Star Trek before? I don't, I, I can't recall as severe a case. Yeah, nothing springs to my mind if we're thinking, you know, from, you know, TNG backwards to the original series, like from this moment going back. Like, I, I, I honestly can't recall. Well, uh, I, I hate to bring this up, but remember. Those weird moments uh, in the early seasons of uh, early season one of uh, TNG, where you know Tasha Yar mm. keeps talking about the rape gangs, yeah, yeah, and that's just like very, very uh, like uh, tough imagery, um, tough language to hear about. But just the way that I think it, this doesn't seem nearly as flippant, no, as it does when Yar is is speaking of such horrific stuff. I've always like had issues with like the intent of it in early TNG when they mention rape gangs because yeah. like we've seen post-apocalyptic films, truly horrific ones, say like you know the road or whatever, where like you can understand that concept in like this sci-fi situation. But I often just felt like they were using it in early TNG just as like a shock word to make people go, "Oh, that sounds bad," as opposed to actually having any interest in what it actually meant. Yeah, I know. Uh, I, I know I, I totally agree with you there. Um, just a slight tangent. You mentioned the road. Mm. Um, how, did you ever read the book? I haven't. No, I've just seen the movie. It's literally the most depressing book I've ever read. Like, it, like I, I, Cormac McCarthy is one of my favorite authors of all time. I've never been so utterly depressed <laughs> like reading a book though in my life. That's how I felt watching the movie. Yeah. I walked through the movie and I was like, well, it'll never be sunny again. <laughs> I think I've only ever watched that movie once. I, I should rewatch it. 
Um, it's a good film. I don't know if I could reread The Road, though. That just sucks so much out of you. Because it's not, like, over in two hours, you know? Like, I just remember spending, like, uh, oh, God. I read it, like, when I was commuting aboard, like, the SkyTrain system, kind of the, uh, the rapid transit system here in Metro Vancouver. And I read it over the course of, like, a week going back and forth between work. And it was just, it was not the best way to start your work day, and it was not the best way to end your work day either. <laughs> yeah, no, I can believe that. No, I think McCarthy, I think the only one I've read is No Country for Old Men, actually. I need to correct that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Blood Meridian is awesome. All the Pretty Horses is awesome. Uh, I, there's so many book recommendations I could give you. Yeah, it's one of those cases, you know, you become an English major with the expectation of covering all of the, not just the old classics, but also the modern classics. And no, <laughs> you kind of get yeah. well, what whatever the whims of your instructor are, that's what you read. Sure. That's kind of the case, yeah. yeah. I, one other slight tangent, um, but I blame you for bringing up the road. Um, hmm. are, are you watching or do you plan on watching uh, HBO's The Last of Us, uh, which just premiered as we record uh, a few days ago? It hasn't like grabbed me as something I would watch. Uh, I guess never say never, but it's not high on my list. Okay, so I, I guess the good news is, well, we'll, I, well, we can reveal this a little bit early. We usually do this kind of housekeeping at the end, but um, that uh, trailer for Mandalorian Season 3 just uh, premiered, and so it looks like not too long after the Season 3 premiere of Picard, which we'll be recapping week to week, uh, we'll get the return of the Camdalorton Report uh, starting in early March, which uh, it, depending on how Season 3 of Picard goes, it might be kind of a nice um, kind of juxtaposition. But <laughs> I, I really hope that I'm enjoying Picard week to week more than Mandalorian week to week. Yeah, um, I, I'm in the same boat. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if both of them just wowed us and it was just like yes, celebrations every week, folks. That'd be so much fun. Who's the Gru of the TNG crew? Oh my god, the Grogu? Um, oh yeah, the Grogu. Yeah, Sorry. is it Spot? What's, what's Gru? Oh, Gru is uh, Groot, I guess. There's Groot. There is... I'm getting all my sci-fi. There is a character named Gru who's like a comic book character, but he's like a like a Viking warrior or something like that, or a barbarian warrior. Um, but a the Grogu of TNG, it's got to be a character that's like. Oh no, I'm the Cam. Hmm. I'm such an idiot. It, it's the villain from Minions. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, okay, him too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Remember the Rise of Gru? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what I was. Thinking. Cam, I want to know who the Rise of Gru is among the TNG crew. Um. It well, he's like a super villain, so I guess it's one of the villains yeah. of TNG. So, uh, Gru is Q. He might be more of a lore, really. Uh, okay. okay. Well, Maybe. which we'll be getting in season three of Picard as well. So. Yeah, because you've got the brothers thing, right? Like, I think there is an uh, yeah. another Gru character. I I don't know. I don't know the Despicable Me universe very well, but uh, yeah, the Grogu of TNG is either Spot or Wesley. A uh, uh, true story, people. Uh, Cam, when you and I went to Universal Studios. And we got on our uh, Minions ride there. You did not even realize we were on a Minions ride at that point. That is true. And then I was argumentative about it being a Minions ride. <laughs> <laughs> I think I literally had to pull up the app a couple months later and show you that we were, in fact, in Minions land yeah. <laughs> on this ride. And you you did you did uh, acknowledge the, uh, the the mistake, though. So, um, so Cam, duet! <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, you know, I do want to uh, tackle the subject matter here. Mm -hmm. um, 
in which you are humanizing the enemy. And, you know, it is a complicated issue here. I think the obvious analog or parallel would be, you know, Nazis in the Second World War. Yeah. And it's it's curious when we have kind of the um the the discourse that surrounds certain television episodes or certain films in which you often have people and I can't blame people for doing this, but they they kind of feel compelled or they just automatically see everything through some sort of political or social lens in which they kind of project intentions upon creators that simply don't exist it's clearly not what the creator's intentions were but you know viewers can't help but project that Mm. on and you know like i I don't think this is an episode about you know hey nazis are just human like us you know not to say that there weren't people that were conscripted uh, on the german side in the second world war but i think that was more kind of the wehrmacht versus kind of the nazis which is more of you know, a, a, a different animal there. But um, I guess, well, this one ultimately got me thinking about kind of the discourse surrounding Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. Which, uh, that, that, that was an episode or a, a film from a few years ago. Uh, Taika Watiti uh, wrote and directed that one. I liked it. I remember you liked it, but there was a lot of um, uh, very uh, polarizing opinions on whether this is just making the uh, the Nazis seem like jolly fun people and, and humanizing them. I think what people often forget, and Cam, I often find that people watch movies and it's very literal to them. Like what they see on screen, it's it's just so completely literal. And Jojo Rabbit is a film, and it it takes place entirely from the perspective of a very young child who is projecting a lot of this kind of silly um, interpretations of his own onto what's happening around him in an extremely horrifying era. This kid is kind of essentially brainwashed, and that's why Hitler seems like a jolly good character to be around. And so something like this, um, I don't think this is about humanizing a somebody who did despicable things. This is about showing the horrors of despicable things. It can have an impact on those that are complicit in it. You know, I, look, you know, uh, Maritza could have... Um, you know, gone to uh, a court martial if he did not want to pursue this, if he would disobey orders. But I also think that's the point, is this is the sort of stuff that, that continues to haunt him. Why didn't he stand up, do more, you know? And I think that's what this episode's getting at, ultimately. And I I, I just, I don't know, I, I, I just keep going back to this one. I really do think that this one has aged well, even if I think discourse that often surrounds these kinds of topics just in the last few years, it's stuff that I just, it kind of makes me roll my eyes uh, to some degree. Not that people don't have valid opinions, but it often comes from projecting their own interpretations onto things where it's clearly not the intent of the creators. I also think exploring these concepts is a much um, just healthier thing to do than just throw up the blanket, you know, black or white statement about anything. Yeah. Um, I think an episode like this teaches us about, you know, well, in this case, it's very much about like war and the horrors com- committed, and it's about two sides. You see how it's affected Kira, and Kira off the top is saying like she doesn't care about the law. She's going to do what's right, and it's like okay, this character has obviously seen very horrible, you know, dark things, and you can see that it's completely disrupted her ability to 
perhaps you know see morality or can at least what other characters would view as morality in the same way or in this case also the law and you see through you know his character someone who also is completely scarred and damaged by um the cardassian role in the occupation and felt weak and helpless while it was happening and is essentially punishing himself and wants to basically put cardassia on you know certain trial or to be punished for what they've done because that's the only way to move forward so ultimately it's very much about two characters feeling like they have to essentially confront their own wounds to move forward and in his case applying that also to you know the planet that did this to to the bajorans it's like a very i think intelligent and mature approach to this kind of material and i know that in the kind of original pitch sort of thing, it was a little more of like a, a Nuremberg-like trial kind of episode. And I think one of the really smart things they you know, happened upon with this uh, teleplay was to turn it more into a mystery where you get these kind of layers falling away so that like you kind of get like three big meetings between Kira and um, Maritza. And each one takes a different position in terms of the power role they're playing and what in his case what role he is playing period because that shifts every single meeting and i think like it just allows you to kind of work through the situation with the characters in a way that if it was a trial would feel very didactic and kind of like okay well it may be a good episode say drumhead is a very good episode Mm -hmm. but i think this one allows you to kind of live through the issues with the characters versus kind of get that kind of that moral lesson imparted uh, I think back to the first trial episode in, in Deep Space Nine, uh, season one, uh, the episode Dax. Uh, do you remember? Yeah. They had to commandeer Quark's bar to hold a trial in there. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm, I'm so glad that they eventually built the set for the wardroom for uh, future episodes, like uh, that Worf episode. Uh, I, I'm always blanking on the t- title, but uh, uh, guest stars Ron Canada as the Klingon advocate there. Right. Yeah, I don't remember the name of that one myself either. And I believe that the episode Dax was the reason they did shift this one because they felt like it was too close to to that episode to do another trial episode. And I mean, this is very serious subject matter. You know, we are there's a real world parallel here going on with the atrocities of the Nazis in World War II. I don't know that I want to see that trial played out at Quark's bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they don't shut Quark's bar down. It's like the Dabo girls are like <laughs> screaming in the background, Dabo! <laughs> oh my god, can you imagine? They like bang the gavel down, Dabo! <laughs> it's like, yeah. Nog's tripping no, over no. himself with the uh, the drinks and the tray and spills over. And it's just like, oh, this is, uh, yeah, it would not quite go over so well. And I mean, we haven't really mentioned him much, but Harris Yulin in you know this guest role is just so towering and one of the things i really noted on this watch was the performance he gives when he is fully impersonating darheel it's very over the top and in a way where i think i'd be i I wouldn't be surprised if first time viewers who haven't who don't know where the episode's going would be almost like a little put off because it's like boy this guy is going megalomaniacal supervillain at times you know just totally just going into kira's face about the horrors and how oh it was efficiency and i'm so glad i did this and oh we could have done so much more it feels so over the top and yet when you get the reveal as to who he actually is you completely understand why he was so unconvincing as darheel because it was all an act and it's not one that he himself 
is psychologically able to portray properly. I have to tell you, one of the most haunting line deliveries in this one, in which there are a number, is when he turns to Kira, and he's still projecting kind of that uh, that goal. Why am I blanking on the the name of the goal? Who is in fact was it Darheel? Yeah, yeah, and. He says to her, you know, what you call genocide, I call a day's work. But he says this in much more the Heath Ledger sort of Joker delivery. You know, not not quite, but it is just, that's still a line that just so haunting. And he delivers it without it. Like, I, I know you're talking about kind of that over the top kind of performance, but it's not as if it's um, campy in any sort of way. No. And it just, it, I keep using the word haunting. I'll, I'll use it for the, well, I guess the fourth time now, but it's just so great in which you know that the character Maritza is trying to project his own guilt, but channeling just kind of the, the hate that must exist in somebody like Darheel to be such an eager participant in what was going on in those forced labor camps. And you would also know that the performance he's putting on, this true face of evil that is <laughs> like just showing all of the horrors just right at Kira is kind of what's necessary to get him what he wants because he wants to be put on trial. He knows that like Kira badly wants to, you know, have him punished for, you know, these crimes. So like if he plays it subtle, it may not have the impact. He needs it to be big and broad and for her to be so horrified that she is going to get him on trial and get him essentially what he wants. Well, even there's just this really, really, really subtle moment in the teaser of the episode in which you know maritza is in sick bay and kira demands that he's arrested yeah and you just just a tiny little bit of the corner of his mouth just smiles just ever so much but like for a split second you know it would not have registered as anything when you're watching it for the first time, but kind of knowing the conceit of the episode going in, you just come to appreciate Harris Eulin's performance that much more. Yeah, like, it's one of those roles that, like, Star Trek has a terrible track record for getting any sort of, like, guest recognition for Emmys or anything like that, but it is the type of performance that you wish would get, you know, pointed to occasionally by, you know, the Academy of Television or something like that, because his moment where he has his big breakdown, too, at the end, so effective it's like it's a it's a you know it's not a tiny performance it's a fairly big performance but like that moment just shatters you and i was taken aback again watching it today and i've probably seen this episode ooh, probably like six or seven times and it still works every time i see it oh this is the first time i've ever watched the episode so there you just keep watching the episode Waltz going, I, uh, this isn't the episode I keep hearing about. Yeah, no, yeah Waltz, duet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah, you know, just maybe a couple uh, you know, final thoughts on this one uh, before. Cam, uh, you, you and I, we're going to do something a little interesting at the end uh, with regards to kind of uh, final thoughts on uh, the, the year 2022. But before we get there, um, I just, I have to point out that... Uh, Kira pronounces Maritza dead on the scene quite quickly with the infirmary, but mere steps away and nobody <laughs> calling for the doctor. And I was just like, huh. Yeah. I wonder if she could have done a little bit more. This is a 24th century. And that town drunk on Deep Space Nine, do you think his aim is really that good? 
I don't know. <laughs> no kidding. I don't know. No kidding. Uh, I know that like there was a play that this was not really based on, but sort of loosely inspired by, and so much of it feels like a play that like the ending feels like something you would see in a play. Like that feels like the moment where you know the lights dim or something, or the you know the curtain comes down. Um, so I, I guess they didn't want the prolonged rushing him to the med bay and Bashir having to call it, but yeah, it does I, I seem know. a little abrupt. <laughs> um, I'll also point out that uh, Maritza pronounces Bejor the same way that uh, Michael Burnham does, which is Bejor. Um, this is when oh, yeah. <laughs> people are still, it wasn't quite canonized the proper way of uh, saying Bejor, but uh, eh, they'd come around by uh, the time you get to season seven of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, and this was also the first time Shakar was ever mentioned with the uh, uh, Shakar Resistance okay. group. Yeah, but I think I think Maritza also mispronounced that. He called it Shakar, and it's like, yeah, he did. Yes, but it's interesting. Okay, how much the influence of like kind of the characters can be when it comes to pronouncing these names uh, for the you know whether you hear it for the first time because you know Kira says Shakar, and that's how it's known going forward. And, and I know there's often like in the scripts they will have like a pronunciation guide, you know. But um, mm. I do appreciate, you know, like, uh, you know, just kind of that subtle influence that many of the uh, performers can have on almost kind of the, the mythology of the series going forward. Well, wasn't that kind of the case with um, Data where they asked, was it Pat or Patrick Stewart wanted to know if it was Data or Data? Yeah. Yeah. And he went with Data. So it stuck. Well, the thing is, because like um, prior to TNG, all Americans would say Data. That was the American yeah. pronunciation of the word. And um, I, I think Americans use that uh, those pronunciations interchangeably now, all because of the DS9 or the TNG character uh, Data, which is quite interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that is really cool. I I had a question for you about this episode because it is a heavy, heavy episode, and that doesn't necessarily mean when you talk about heavy episodes that they're going to be fan favorites. And yet, this is an episode I hear brought up time and time again by fans at conventions. What do you think it is about this episode that makes it seemingly so rewatchable to fans? Yeah, despite it being such a heavy episode. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I think it's anchored by Nana Visitor. And this is, I think, the first time that we really see what she can really do and move forward as a character. But why is it rewatched so much, despite it being so heavy? Kim, I just think it's a damn good script. You know, it's a very simple script. Yeah. It's not overly complicated. It's a bottle episode, which fans really do enjoy bottle episodes as well. Um, and it's also like unpretentious storytelling. And I think we can do something like that. And it's also a very universal story. Um, the performances by both Nana Visitor and, and Harris Yulin, um, I think they really center everything as well. I think you just, you put all the correct ingredients into something and you can't really argue with the fact that the cake comes out perfectly well after it's being baked. And this is what you get, you know? I think it's also elements like you mentioned, where because this episode is played out like a mystery, there is a lot of enjoyment going back and noting those little decisions. Like, as you said, you know, kind of the slight smile on Harris Eulin's face or just the way that, like, if you know the outcome, watching the performance and going back and seeing how, because you know who Maritza actually is, seeing him put on this performance throughout the episode. It just has, like, as I said up top, like, a lot of layers that are interesting to revisit, whereas there are other episodes which, you know, equally heavy, but you kind of get the point, and you don't have that need to look for differing takes on the episode on a revisit. 
So Cam, I floated this at the very top of the one where you could make an argument uh, for three episodes from uh, season one of Deep Space Nine as being uh, the best. You know, maybe uh, the emissary in the hands of the prophets or duet. Uh, which one would you pick out of those three? I mean, I was going to say if wishes were horses, but you didn't mention that one. <laughs> okay. um, uh, there's, there's also progress with uh, the, uh, the Bajoran farmer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dramatis Persona, uh, Personae was the episode that aired right before this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, to me, it's always been duet. I, I appreciate what Emissary does in terms of setting up the show, but I do think that episode plays a lot better after you've watched DS9 than the first time. <laughs> um, in, in all fairness, that was you going in to the series. Uh, I remember yeah, watching... True. I, I remember watching that uh, series premiere and being absolutely blown away by it. I, I really do. Right. But um, I, I, I know it's not for everybody. And I, I do agree with you. Like, I appreciate watching that series premiere now even more having gone through the series itself. And, and it really is kind of a good like example of how you do a pilot correctly and what you set up both the conceit of a series as well as the characters and you set up the conflicts that are going to persist among all the characters as well. But uh, for me, I, I, I got to give it to Duet. You know, it's just, it, it's just such simple storytelling and powerful storytelling all kind of there. And it, it's like, the fact is, it, it's almost like Deep Space Nine in a nutshell in which... You know, you get to the end of the episode, and it's it, it's not really a happy ending. You have Kira saying, like, we need more men like you on Cardassia if Cardassia is going to change. And mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, don't worry, Kira. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a while till Damar kind of helps fix things a little bit, but uh, even he is no <laughs> no rose when you meet him. So, uh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I also touch upon the fact that uh, she does come around on a lot of uh, Cardassians when she gets to know them individually. And it, it is funny how, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> the final episode of Deep Space Nine, she and Damar are laughing their asses off about trying to get through the <laughs> door of, uh, like, a central <laughs> command. I, I Could you yeah. ever imagine Kira and Damar, like, laughing so hard, like, they're in tears about, like, their current situation, about, like, an imminent death? No, no. I mean, that's what I love the most about this show is that characters feel so differently by the end, you know, the beginning. And uh, this is, you know, we talked about this being, you know, this first great episode of DS9 or one of the greats. And it does feel like maybe the most crucial launch to what is going to be a string of very, very strong Kira episodes as well. Like that character typically got pretty great episodes through the course of the run and this is just the first one yeah Alrighty, cam well um we kind of teased it uh in our final episode of 2022 i kind of put you on the spot a little bit unfairly i knew what the question was going to be going in <laughs> uh and uh but uh why don't we talk about our uh 10 favorite films of 2022 i think you and i uh, we saw a screening um just the other night of uh women talking and I think that was probably the last big one I felt that I needed to see with regards to all the mm-hmm. films uh, that will be getting a lot of recognition, uh, presumably come Oscar time. Not that I put a ton of stock in whether or not some film that I absolutely love is honored by the Oscars, but I feel very confident. Uh, like I have a, a solid list of 2022 films. Um, do we want to go like um, you do your number 10, I do my number 10, and then kind of go back and forth from there? That's probably the best way to do it, yeah. Okay. And then if we have something to share um, about each other's picks, then yeah, we can jump in. Um, 
we don't have to be too, too long about it. But uh, number 10 is uh, Armageddon Time uh, from one of my favorite filmmakers, uh, James Gray. Uh, it's like kind of really did not get much uh, attention, <laughs> but nope. it's essentially kind of uh, takes place in 1980. Uh, it follows kind of the uh, kind of a James Gray, almost semi-autobiographical story of his uh, early childhood there. And just kind of growing up in a situation where he is in very different situations in terms of from like one kind of inner city school to one kind of more prep school. And uh, I'm making it sound boring. It is not. It's a, a great film that I'd recommend to anybody. And he's teased that it could lead to follow-ups. Uh, so I would be totally open to those. Well, the actor who, who's portraying this kind of uh, James Gray analog was uh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think of Francois Truffaut, who made The 400 Blows, one of the great coming-of-age stories of all time. And he proceeded to make, I think, four or five other films about that character. So I'm open to it. Um, my number 10, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Oh, nice. I love that one. Yes, I watched the Zemeckis Pinocchio <laughs> earlier in the year. <laughs> I'm a big Pinocchio fan. The original 1940 film I, I love, but um, the Del Toro version, I, I didn't really know what to expect, and I was just absolutely blown away by the stop-motion animation, but also just, well, we've talked about duet. Uh, this, ep- or this film is very much about fascism, and that's not something you expect to see necessarily in a Pinocchio story, and I like the way it was taking the material, but telling what felt like an entirely new story in a way that was everything you expect from del toro it was dark and it was strange it was very emotional and heartfelt so i love this one on my letterboxd accounts i've got the list of all my films uh if anybody wants to search for my letterboxd accounts uh, you can find me at reporten same as my twitter as well but i have pinocchio ranked uh number 14 uh for 2022 and i gave that one four stars i would definitely recommend that yeah um so what's your number nine my number nine is Avatar, The Way of Water. I've seen it twice in theaters at this point because I just, when you and I walked out of it a couple of weeks ago, my my first thought was like, I, I cannot let this go out of theaters without seeing it yet again in theaters. You know, like this one, um, it's uh, the best way somebody described it, like a film critic I, I really uh, appreciate uh, was, uh, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was Tim Grusin. He described the story as more like a clothesline to hang everything else on. And just kind of this immersive world um, that you're thrust into, I, I, I was truly like blown away. And James Cameron hooked me with just throwing you into kind of this atmosphere. And I could just go along with kind of the mood, even if like the story wasn't anything like extraordinary. But I don't know. I, 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 I absolutely loved Avatar The Way of Water. Number nine. Well, I've got some spectacle for my number nine. I have Top Gun Maverick here. Nice. Uh, I, I can't believe that I'm citing Top Gun Maverick on a top 10 list because... Top is right in the name of it, so there you go. It's true. <laughs> it's true. But I'm not like the biggest Top Gun fan. And when they were like throwing out all the trailers, teasing like Top Gun music and stuff, it meant very little to me. <laughs> and so I was genuinely blown away that the movie works dramatically, but also as spectacle... I mean, seeing it, you know, you and I went in Vancouver, just saw it in, you know, uh, AVX room, you know, bit bit of a nicer theater room, but not top, top level room. Um, And I was blown away. And then we got to see it in IMAX in Las Vegas. And I mean, I've seen very few movies that look as spectacular as Top Gun Maverick, but there's more to just the visuals and the spectacle. It holds together, I think, as an engaging drama. In terms of blockbusters, it's tough to do much better. 
Yeah, I, and I will just clarify, like, uh, you said AVX is not top, top level. Um, IMAX is top level, and then AVX yeah. is right below it. Like, it's not yeah. like we were seeing this in, like, some 1950s... Uh, 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 Drive-in. What, what, what do they call it? Yeah, drive-in. Uh, Nickelodeon. Was, uh, that was the word that I was trying to uh, oh, Okay, Nickelodeon, uh, yeah. That. Yeah, what was your number nine, Cam? Oh, Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm my number eight. Um, Cam, you and I saw the trailer for Barbarian, and we turned to each other like, yeah, it looks like garbage. And then <laughs> the reviews came pouring in. Um, the little, you, the, the less you know about this film the more you'll enjoy it um cam this is some of the most fun i had in movie theater um all i have to say to people that haven't watched it before just like sit with it the movie takes a turn at one point you'll know when and all i can say is like i'm not big into like horror stuff uh cam this is this totally worked for me you you know i'm not a big horror aficionado but um i really really loved watching barbarian uh, this past year Yes, and Justin Long, one of the great performances of 2022. I will say no more. This one made my honorable mentions, but uh, I respect, yeah, putting on the top 10. It was it was the big surprise. Like, um, I'm trying to think if there was another, like, real breakout horror film of the year. Actually, there was, a, there was another one that I'll maybe mention later on. But this one was, it truly deserved the success it got. Um, my number eight was Armageddon Time. You mentioned it earlier, but yes. I don't know that, like... James Gray has grabbed me as much in the past. I've liked most of his work, but I don't know that I've had many of them that really felt like that next level, just falling in love with them experience. And this was one that actually really connected with me. I thought we've had, especially this past year, a lot of coming of age stories coming from popular directors. And this one, I felt like took a different tact. It was doing things that were different and interesting. I liked its sort of examination of class and race, but it did it in a way where it felt heartfelt. And I mean, um, what's I'm totally blanking. The actor who plays the father in the movie, Jeremy Strong? Oh, Jeremy Strong, yeah. It is Jeremy Strong. Okay, yeah. A shattering moment. We talked about Harris Eulin's shattering performance in Duet. Uh, Jeremy Strong has a moment towards the end of this movie that is a must-see moment in 2022 <laughs> movies. I can attest to that as well. Um, and then for those that might not know, uh, James Gray, uh, he was a director, writer behind Ad Astra, which is a very polarizing film. I remember walking out of that uh, with you, and I clearly liked that one much more than you did. Not to say you disliked it, but that one yeah. clearly kind of uh, touched me in maybe a way that uh, uh, you, you weren't quite on the same kind of um, wavelength that I was. But I think you still liked Ad Astra. I did, yeah. I wanted to rewatch it, actually. Yeah, uh, I've seen it twice uh, so far. I, I I loved it both times. Uh, number seven for me, Cam, is uh, Pearl, uh, yet another horror film. Um, again, uh, this one is interesting. It's a prequel to another horror film that also came out in the same year of 2022, um, X. Um, I loved X, but it didn't quite make my top 10 list. Uh, I'm looking here. I have X at number 18. Um, this takes place, you know... Uh, <laughs> In a simpler time, Cameron, you know, <laughs> where um, Technicolor is uh, kind of a new thing. But uh, yeah, this takes place kind of around, uh, what, 1930s, 1940s um, on like a rural farm. I just, I, the less said about this one, the better. But um, the the performance from Mia Goth, especially uh-huh. <laughs> there's another moment at the end of the episode, at the end of the film. Um, I, I, I'm not going to spoil it uh, for anybody, but it is so gripping. And just the way that the uh, r- r- writer-director Ty West, and, and Mia Goth contributed to the script as well, but how Ty West is able to just suck you into this universe 
and Mia Goth is given this material. I don't know who else could like pull this off in terms of kind of setting up this character. And uh, well, it's not even setting her up. It's explaining how this character became what she was by the time we get to the movie X. Uh, so I don't know. I I I, I loved Pearl. And I don't know, for me, was, uh, two horror films on my top 10 list never really happened before for me. Yeah, no kidding. Um, yes, and I may be talking about Pearl a little bit later, too. Uh, my number seven was The Batman. And uh, this is a movie that I went into with, I don't know that I had the highest of expectations. Other than I love the work of Matt Reeves, I still think his Planet of the Apes... Well, he did the second two in the recent trilogy with Andy Serkis, but I loved his work there, and... This one, to me, just plays so well. I've watched it multiple times now. And his understanding of Gotham City and how to portray Batman as a compelling character as opposed to Bruce Wayne. One of the biggest stumbling blocks I've seen every single filmmaker go up against, which is how do you make Batman interesting versus just kind of an action figure? And I think he broke it. And I love the mystery plotting of this one. Paul Dano's Riddler was an interesting take on a character that's gone through many permeations um, or permutations, I should say, over the course of his existence. And I very much look forward to seeing what Matt Reeves does next because I think he's going to try to up what he did here. And I I guess that'll just mean it's even longer, <laughs> three and a half hours. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I enjoyed the Batman. I've only seen it once. Uh, I Ultimately, I have it number 22 on my list here. But uh, for me, my number six is The Fablemans. Again, yet another uh, coming-of-age sort of story from a uh, filmmaker talking about his own life. Um, in this case, <laughs> Steven Spielberg. Um, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts with Steven Spielberg um, uh, doing like these long-form interviews, which I've never really heard before. You know, I, I see him in clips on like kind of the uh, special features packages. Um, Steven Spielberg is just, you can tell why he's being so successful as a storyteller. Just listening to him being so engaging in these interviews, it gives me even more appreciation for what he's doing with the Fablemans, which could have been, Kim, this movie is so much weirder than mm -hmm. I think people would assume based on, say, the marketing. For him to go to these places talking about his own family, like that takes a lot of bravery. A lot of folks could just kind of keep this buried. Um... In all fairness, both his parents have passed on at this point, yeah. and I don't know if he would have made this film had they still been with us, but he said he essentially made this one, uh, like he wrote the script during COVID, and he just felt compelled, like, I have to get this story told somehow if we're in kind of like the end of the world. And it shows, like, this is just, this is such a unique, strange film, and you brought up Paul Dano a second ago. Um, he had, again, another amazing performance from Paul Dano here playing um, kind of the, the father figure uh, in this one. So I absolutely love this. Yeah, it was a great year for Paul Dano, for sure. Um, number six, I have Tar with Kate Blanchett. Uh, <laughs> what do you even say about this movie? I mean, it's about a genius musician, composer, um, and conductor played by Kate Blanchett, and it's a study of, like, what happens to an individual who is just a genius-level talent and how other people respond to them and the responsibility Stop that comes with Stop describing me, Cameron. <laughs> the movie's so much weirder than anything I can really describe, but it's the latest movie from Todd Field, who hasn't made a movie since um, Little Children, which was back in, oh boy, 2006 or something like that. Uh, that was with Kate Winslet, a movie I also loved, but... Um, this one went to places I never expected. I never knew what I was going to get at any moment. 
And when it was over, I think I wrote in my Letterboxd review, uh, and I'll put links to our Letterboxd reviews in the show notes, uh, or to our Letterboxd accounts, but um, I was like, this one is going to play very well on rewatches, much like Duet, I guess. Well, you know, this movie, when you and I hunkered down, and I was thinking, okay, I've got two hours and 40 minutes, this yeah. this better be good. Um, this movie moves at a clip, but mm-hmm. the way that he paces it, you get sucked into this universe as well. It's very unique. I I, I absolutely love this. Uh, you know, Kate Blanchett deserves all, she always des- deserves the praise she gets, but she really does take it to like this amazing level with her performance here in Tar as the titular character Lydia Tar. I'm just a little conflicted though because like Michelle Yeoh, I would love to see her get the Oscar this year. I don't think that's going to happen with Kate Blanchett in the contest. Uh, can I be honest? I, I do think Kate Blanchett deserves it more for this performance, yeah. despite how much I love Michelle Yeoh uh, in everything, everywhere, all at once. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cam, number five. I don't think this is anywhere near your top 10 list, but I don't care. <laughs> uh, Babylon. Um, uh, yet again, oh. another very uh, divisive, polarizing film. Uh, I had the privilege of seeing it in an almost empty theater there were a couple walkouts. I did not care. Uh, this is the latest film from Damien Chazelle, of course, of La La Land. I hated that movie. Uh, I really did not like it. You you saw that one with me, and uh, you and my ex uh, were far more delighted by La La Land than I was. But um, and then <laughs> we were dancing the, in the aisles. <laughs> yeah, but I think the two or the three of us we we went and saw First Man as well. And again, I like First Man much more than you two did. Uh, so yeah. uh, I don't know. Uh, Damien Chazelle, he, he, he's kind of overall all over the place for me. But like just this like manic depiction of, you know, kind of like 1930s, like sort of Hollywood. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, you, you will either love or you will either hate this one. I don't think there's a lot of people that are kind of in between on uh, uh, Babylon I've been recommending so many other movies. I'm not going to like recommend this. I'm going to say, hey, if you want to see it, go see it. If you don't think you're going to enjoy it going in, then I'm not. I'm like, then don't bother. Don't don't waste your time. But um, I I was sucked in this yet again. What three hours and ten minutes in this situation, Cam? Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm more than happy to watch that again, especially the uh, Hello College scene, which uh, I I think was one of the best scenes in cinema this past year. Oh, I mean, Babylon has some of the best scenes of the year, bar none. Like, it is a movie that is a grand, <laughs> you could say mess, you could say triumph. It's maybe a little bit of both, but it actually just fell, ju- I think, oh, no, it did make my honorable mentions. So uh, it was in there, just uh, yeah. not quite my top 10. I, I do want to call you out on something, Cam. Um, you gave mm. Babylon, uh, at least the last time I checked your letterbox, uh, because I wanted to be sure of something. You gave Babylon three and a half, three and a half stars. Yeah, uh, Cam, you and I last weekend went and saw Megan. Uh, you also gave Megan three and a half stars. And I'm yeah, just like um, putting those films on the same level, uh, I thought was. Um, uh, well, they're uh, trying I, to do very different things. They're both different types of films. It amused me to no end. That, that's all I will say. That's fair. I, I I liked I liked Megan, but I just to me it's not quite a three and a half star uh, movie. I, I gave it a, a three stars, I believe. I guess to me I consider like the history of horror comedies, and I go this one did it better than most, so sure. I have to give the extra points for that. Audiences, uh, the Megan screening was some of the most fun I've had. Uh, mm-hmm. it, like it it was just constant 
stream of snickering from this packed audience. Um, it just it was the movie is so self aware and playing it for laughs and camp and uh, it, it's a lot of fun. I definitely recommend Megan. Well, speaking of movies that uh, I would recommend, uh, my number five, The Banshees of Inisherin, which the latest movie from Martin McDonough, um, who did In Bruges and uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, this one to me, it was really interesting because it's much more subdued than his previous films. It's a much darker, more in, like almost intimate character study about you know Colin Farrell's character and his relationship with um, Brendan Gleeson and how it kind of falls apart and how this impacts both the men's lives and the community. This movie, it's kind of, in some ways, I would say a little bit like a Babylon, Tyler, where I would say, I don't know that everyone's going to love this movie, but I think to those it speaks to, they're really going to be drawn into it big time. I hope this is Colin Farrell's year. It, it, it's going to yeah. be a tough year in terms of the uh, Oscar race for best uh, male performance. I really do hope that it's Colin Farrell's year. Like, I absolutely love this one. Going in, I, I, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. Um, I mean, the reviews were good. Um, Cam, I was among, I, I, I would say, uh, a very small number of people that walked out of uh, uh, Ebbing, Missouri, or three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, opening weekend. And you can attest to this. I turned to you and I said... I absolutely hate this movie. I think it's yeah. completely toxic. And it took about three weeks for that discussion to get going among like a wider audience. So I I I, I was a little bit concerned going in, like, um, because I also did not like Seven Psychopaths, which uh, was yeah, Martin McDonough's other efforts. But in Bruges was one of my all-time favorite movies. And mm -hmm. with kind of the reunion of Gleason and Farrell, this one did not disappoint. I agree with you. It's not for everyone, but uh, I absolutely love uh, Banshees of Inisherin. So what is your number four? Top Gun Maverick, baby. Yet another oh, film wow. where I've seen it twice in theaters. It's one of those movies where I need to, I just felt I had to see it again in theaters. More than happy to see it the second time in IMAX in this situation. Cam, they just like, how often do you feel kind of this thrilled seeing a blockbuster movie like this? You just don't really get these sorts of movies, uh, especially this past year. Cam, think of the summer. It was like garbage like Jurassic World. You know, I was incredibly disappointed by something like uh, Thor, which I, I've just, I, I think um, Thor Ragnarok was like top tier Marvel for me, despite, you know, again, those third act problems. But um there's just like what, what was the best like movie summer blockbuster after uh, uh, I was gonna see Banshees of Inisherin, but I meant I meant to say Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> um, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of what I saw. I mean, uh, Doctor Strange Two wasn't very good. Nope. Was it? Was it? Nope. Yeah, it's probably nope. Yeah. 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 But is that like a blockbuster film? No, not really. Yeah. No, you should have said nope. Yeah, I should have. I really missed the joke there. Too bad. Yeah, yeah I don't know. It's just, it was a terrible, terrible year for blockbusters. And then, uh, I don't know. but hey, don't worry. They followed up in the fall with Black Adam. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. What's your number four, sir? I have Pearl here. Uh, okay. Mia Goth needs to be a huge star. Like, I don't necessarily <laughs> yeah. need to see her headlining Marvel movies, but like, this needs to be like the next Kate Blanchett or something. Like a young talent who should be doing all the most interesting work around because yes uh x which came out you know earlier in the year i real attention grabber but to me her performance in pearl 
just elevates the movie so high. And I love the mix of sort of darker Hitchcockian elements with Technicolor musicals, a combination I never thought I would really see. It works beautifully. And Ty West and Mia Goth are making a third entry, a I guess closer to their trilogy, and I cannot wait to see that this year. Yeah, I'm I'm pumped for that one. I, okay, so my introduction to Mia Goth, uh, it was a movie that you and I saw together with two other friends. Um, it was Nymphomaniac Volumes One and Two back to back, the extended <laughs> version. Like that. What was that? Like four and a half, five hours of our life, Cam. Do you recall? How yeah, long was that? it was about four, four and change. Yeah, I think it was four and a half at least. Um, Probably that that was that was quite the evening. I think we got out of the theater at about midnight, and I had to be up for work at five a.m. the next day. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I, I, I mean, I liked her in *Nymphomaniac*, but um, just this to me was just such a revelation seeing her in you know back to back in *X* and *Pearl*, and I, I can't wait for *Maxine*. Um, *Maxine* spelt with uh, triple X's. Uh, so there, there's a maybe a hint as to what's to come uh, with uh, this Ty West Mia Goth trilogy. It's interesting because X was like the flashy release, the one that had more press. And Pearl was an idea they came up with while shooting X and basically filmed a second movie. And it seems like Pearl is the one now that is starting to get more of the movement behind it. I see a lot of people referencing this movie. I see it posted on Letterboxd a lot. It seems like Pearl is the one that seems to have more traction. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm getting that sense as well. So, uh, okay, number three for me, Cam. Uh, the Banshees of Inisherin. Uh, mm-hmm. This one just it, it, the way that you can kind of relate to this idea, and, and they're dealing with like heavy issues, which it, it's not really being properly diagnosed. But you know, it, it deals with stuff like depression uh, very heavily. But it's also you can mm-hmm. kind of relate to the kind of the conceit of this, in which simply like a, a f- one friend does not want to be friends anymore benjamin young podcast <laughs> co-host of subspace transmission well, I, don't, I don't know i mean, maybe there's a bit of a spoiler cam for maybe what's to come mm. but uh, there are rumblings that uh, fallen co-host benjamin young might be making an appearance sometime during uh, picard season three that's all i'll say we, uh, we'll, we'll see we'll see we'll see we'll see but um but it's kind of interesting um in that it's also something like I, I've had this discussion with like other folks and how like you can sometimes be more hurt by friendships necessarily than like um, like romantic relationships. And like there's almost like kind of this ripcord or kind of a clean break that can happen if a relationship doesn't ultimately work out. But with friendships, it can get a lot messier, you know, and I don't know. This one is just like uh, <laughs> the, the, the what unfolds from like the uh, halfway through the second act onward is something that you, you might not be prepared for. But I don't know that this one just gripped me all the way through. So number three for me is Banshees of Inisherin. Well, my number three was The Fablemans. And as someone who, you know, grew up on Spielberg, I've sometimes been frustrated a little bit with later career Spielberg, where I've mm-hmm. just felt like sometimes I don't know that he's made many movies I didn't like but they haven't grabbed me necessarily as much as I would like. One that I've actually fallen in love with in recent years has been Bridge of Spies, which I've seen now about six or seven times. But I find a lot of his work, I watch it, I'll admire it, but they aren't movies I come back to. The Fablemans was one, as soon as we walked out of that movie, I knew I'd be watching it more times uh, over the course of my life. And I like seeing him 
in some ways go back to his earlier roots doing things like Sugarland Express, where it's more of these intimate character stories. Um, this is a movie that I, I think it's a bummer that it's not doing better, but I also understand why it's not. Uh, it is, as you said, a strange film. It feels very much like snapshots of memories of Spielberg's life. And I don't know how you market that to an audience anymore because they clearly didn't know with the poster or the trailers or anything. Uh, but it's a movie I think people would really enjoy if they gave it a shot, especially like I think cinephiles are really going to like it. And uh, it kind of gives us a little more insight into kind of so often Spielberg is summed up as sort of this legendary figure. And I like getting a glimpse at the humanity within him to kind of understand his journey versus the, well, a genius was born and this genius made genius movies. Yeah, I, I love this one. Um, once it's on the streaming server, is it already on like Disney Plus at this point? I think it, I may be wrong, but I think it's just on pay rental services yeah, right okay. now. But yeah. But I'll, I'll, I'll be rewatching it like quite soon once it's on uh, Disney Plus. Uh, I believe it's a Disney release, is it not? I think or is it so? Universal? Oh, okay. yeah. Now I'm questioning. It's it's something. <laughs> okay. Well, it'll, it's something. It'll end up on a streaming service, and I'll watch it again uh, quite quickly. Uh, Cam, <laughs> number two. This is a movie I saw at the beginning of the year, and for the longest time, I, I just I was like, how is anybody going to shake this movie out of the top ten? This is not a great year for cinema, and I think this movie no. has unfortunately been kind of forgotten about, and it bums me out. Um, this, <laughs> this movie, again, another weird one, Cam, um, The Northman. Uh, this one is just <laughs> stuck in my brain. I gave it four and a half stars when I walked out of that uh, one with, uh, it was uh, you, me, and a bunch of friends as well. And um, this is a, a Viking tale. And somebody once described it as if it was a Viking movie made by literal Vikings. And this is the kind <laughs> of stuff that they would just watch. It is um, not trying to dress things up not trying to make like uh heroes that did not exist this is how people would have actually behaved and um this movie is incredibly messed up but it has stuck in my brain you know 10 months after i uh saw it and it just bums me out that it's kind of been forgotten about this year and it just really hasn't ended up on many top 10 lists for me i'm put in all the way at number two it's my number two as well hell actually. yeah <laughs> all right yeah. and this is directed by robert eggers who made the witch and um the lighthouse i love this guy's work and this movie i i'm not like a huge like viking medieval guy there's movies i like but it's not a genre that i'm like i can't wait to see the latest bloody viking film and i was blown away at this one i like the way it told this very mythic story in ways that are just visually astonishing uh it's got a, you know several great performances but alexander skarsgard and um, Anya Taylor-Joy are just fantastic in this movie. It's weird. Ethan Hawke, he's doing weird things in this movie. Um, so it's not a movie necessarily for everyone, but I guess it was for me. Cam, <laughs> uh, uh, can you guess my number one based on uh, everything that we've gone through so far? I know I'm kind of throwing you on the spot and like, you'd have to remember everything that's come before, but uh, I, I just want to test uh, what you might have in mind for me. Is it um, Tar? 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good yeah. guess. Uh, I, I absolutely, uh, I, you know, I already mentioned before my number one movie for the year is Tar. Again, it's just one of those movies that sticks in my mind. It's like trying to scrape a spider web out of like your mouth. Like you, there's just no way you can do that justice. And uh, this is just uh, the Kate Blanchett performance alone. Um, I don't know how you have the confidence that Todd Field does in like turning something like the first, what, 10, 12 minutes of the movie where it's just her being like interviewed by a journalist, like uh, to set up mm. everything that's going on. And it could be so heavy handed, but it works in a way. And then you just go with the film from set piece to set piece to set piece. Um, this is fantastic. Kate Blanchett. Like I, like she is my favorite actress. Uh, I'll put her up there with, um, you know, folks like um, Tilda Swinton, you know, like she's up there uh, as well. And so uh, for me, my number one was Tar. Absolutely. Hands down. Yeah. Can you guess what my number one was? Oh, yeah, dude. Uh, very easy. Uh, this was uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Bang on. Bang on. No, my number one is RRR. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kim, you know me. I, I stopped and started this movie a couple times. I will finish it by the time the Oscars roll around. I, I, I think we both suspect it'll get nominations. It just I can tell this is just not a movie for me, but I, I totally understand why this is a movie for so many people. Yeah, this is directed by S.S. Rajamui, and this is a Tollywood film from India, and this movie, I'd heard a lot about it, and so when I sat down and watched it on Netflix one evening, I really, it was, honestly, I was probably a little bit like you, where I kept hearing it was a must-watch, and I'm looking at that three-hour runtime, and I'm going, do I need to watch this? Like, okay, I guess, and no one could describe really what the movie was in a way where I was like, oh, I, I need to watch this. And I understand why after seeing the movie, because it is just a crazy potpourri of, you know, epic filmmaking, effects-driven filmmaking, martial arts filmmaking, musicals. It's both all over the place and so cohesive in terms of what it wants to do. And I love that it celebrates just human movement in a way you so rarely see nowadays. The martial arts and all of the, you know, dancing and musical numbers are absolutely incredible. It's one of those movies that is just endless sequence after endless sequence of just invention and a filmmaker clearly in love with what he can achieve on film. I'm a little curious. He says he's going to make a sequel to this movie. I'm like, I don't know how that'll work, but I'm fascinated to see if he can pull it off. But RRR, I watched it. Um, made it that three-hour journey, and I watched it again two days later. So uh, that is not something I do very often. So I, I, when I looked at my list of films from this year, I don't think any of them wowed me as much as this one. Okay, well, look, I'm 90 minutes of the way through. I'll, I'll, I'll do those <laughs> maybe 30-minute increments over the next couple months. Or, I don't know. Like, um, yeah, no, but like, I totally understand why people like this one. Um, for me, a couple honorable mentions I want to mention. Again, a very polarizing one. Uh, <laughs> But uh, Bones and All, mm -hmm. I really liked. I did love, I thought Chippendale Rescue Rangers was excellent. I love Turning Red and Pinocchio. Um, another like movie that I don't think it's getting as much notice as maybe it should. You and I both really liked Vengeance from BJ Novak, a.k.a. Ryan from The Office. Yeah. Um, that was fantastic. Uh, Triangle of Sadness, Everything Everywhere All at Once, um, 3,000 Years of Longing, uh, X, and uh, the aforementioned uh, Women Talking ended up at number 20 for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just um, put a couple honorable mentions on my list. Um, I had Everything Everywhere All at Once, which, again, like Michelle Yeoh, it feels like a performance that 
we've been building towards. It's like they finally rediscovered how incredible she is as a performer. And this was like the perfect project for her and just showcased her so brilliantly. Um, I have Barbarian on there. Um, Turning Red, the one of the more recent Pixar films. I love this one. Um, this, you know, I like when Pixar kind of goes outside the lines. I'm not as big a fan of like, you know, the Toy Story sequels. Um, well, a lot of the sequel work they've been doing, Finding Dory, things like that. I like when they, you know, tell these very specific stories, but they feel universal. This is just like one of the great ones. And um, I also had Babylon, which we mentioned earlier, and Senior, the Robert Downey Jr. produced documentary about his father, Robert Down uh, Downey Sr., who was an experimental filmmaker back in the day. When you and... said father, I could have figured out the senior math camp. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. That sounds incredibly stupid for me to uh, phrase it that way, but thanks for pointing it out. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the movie is interesting because you go, well, do I care about his father? But the movie does a fantastic job kind of creating this exploration of who his father was as a filmmaker while also delving into their family life, you know, his evolution as a man over the course of his life. Really interesting documentary. I think people would actually really enjoy it. It's not... Um, it's not heavy to digest. It's very watchable. Okay. Uh, I'll finally just share my bottom uh, five movies with everybody. Um, yeah. Uh, worst movie for me, and I'll go from there. Uh, the Bubble, the Judd Apatow film, which is, I don't know how I finished that one. I don't know how. I never, I never watched it. I felt like I failed making a worst list because I didn't watch that one. So props to you. Yeah. Uh, so The Bubble then Black Adam, then Jurassic World, then The Gray Man, then Morbius. Uh, so th that's my bottom five. Okay. My worst of the year was Moonfall, uh, the movie where the moon fell. Uh, number two was Robert Zemeckis' Pinocchio. Number three, Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. Number four, Black Adam. And number five, Jurassic World Dominion. And I also just had noted Morbius, Samaritan, and Firestarter as some other duds. Well, look, we will be back next week uh, after doing an episode all about duets. Kim, we're going to follow that up with an episode about duets. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, the best pairs of characters that you always like seeing uh, like uh, paired up for an episode or something like that, or just you know in a scene together. I think that's a lot of fun. And I think after that, um, you and I will be uh, gearing up for uh, you know Picard season three. Uh, our minds are open, our expectations are low. Which can only mean that we'll uh, hopefully like it, but I don't know. Uh, I I want the um, <laughs> I want the creators to prove uh, us wrong uh, going in. That's right. I'm just hoping for a stargazer like launch where yes. I can walk out and be like, boy, that first episode is really good. Yes. Yes. So. Yeah. So okay, you can of course also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in <laughs> Vengeance, directed by B J Novak Smith. Uh, you can find me at Reportin. That's R. R is an R R R. Uh, e P O R T O N. Okay. So until next time, the arena is closed. <laughs> Nacho, 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 yara, nacho, 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 kachi, keri, desa, kakta, nacho, 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 bichu, kata, lage, esa, nacho. Transfer complete.